Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? For thousands of Alberta oil and gas workers, the future, the one filled with lost jobs, uncertainty, and endless questions, arrived a few days ago as President Joe Biden rose to the highest office in the United States. Wielding his pen, Biden cancelled the Keystone XL pipeline project in the name of the environment. No surprise, really, but a blow all the same. This is a gut punch for the Canadian and Alberta economies. We worked hard over the past number of months um, trying to make the case to bring the facts to the Biden team. We're going to continue to make that case. If ultimately those efforts are not successful, uh, we will defend our interests in court as necessary. Now the politics, even lawsuits, may drag on and on. But reality is setting in. This decision is a sign that they don't want more of our heavy oil. And even if you leave that oil in the ground, the question remains, what about all the people whose jobs have depended on pulling it out? Canada's had experience with this kind of thing in the past. We'll revisit lessons learned when angry workers in Newfoundland's cod fishery lost their jobs. That was almost 30 years ago. This week, we look at the idea of a just transition, long promised by Ottawa, a plan to ease workers out of fossil fuel jobs and into a better, more secure working life in a world with a cleaner climate. We start today where the Keystone XL pipeline starts, in Alberta. As you know, oil and gas courses through the province, its history and its culture. That's true of small towns like Hardesty and big cities like Edmonton. That's where we've reached Scott Crichton. He's a highly trained electrician, and in recent years he's worked his way into a union leadership role. The union represents 5,500 electrical workers. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I'm wondering how concerned you are by uh, President Joe Biden's decision to scrap the Keystone XL pipeline. Well, uh, it's concerning. Uh, definitely, we have a lot of members and contractors that are directly tied to the oil and gas industry. So while the pipeline construction itself wouldn't result in any real electrical jobs, I would think that later on down the line, the expanded pipeline capacity would lead to more opportunities for larger projects like oil refineries or oil sands production. Right. Because as you say, your members don't build the pipelines. There is refinery work. What kind of life has the oil and gas sector offered to you and your members over the years? Well, we're very grateful for the opportunities that it's given us. You know, we're talking about sometimes some cases wages from 75000 to $100,000 a year pension plan and benefits, you know, and gave opportunities for people from across Canada to come here and, and have a better life for themselves. In some cases, people from other parts of the world came to Alberta to have an opportunity for a better life. How has that changed in the last few years? 
For our local directly, it was the Northwest Redwater Refinery was the last real large mega project. Um, and that neared completion towards the end of 2018. Since then, uh, there hasn't been a lot of places for our members to go to work. So what we've seen happen is people either move on to other professions or move to other parts of the country just to be able to find employment and continue to pay their bills and look after their families. This must really be shaking people up after so many years of having so much good pay and so much security. Yeah, it's sad. And uh, it puts us in a frustrating position because we want to give them hope, right? We want to give them an opportunity to to feel like there's going to be better times ahead. Certainly, I, I think the LNG plant in Kitimat is an opportunity for some of them to be able to go to work. But for Alberta right now, I think, you know, we're leaning uh, on our friends and family and on each other just to get through this difficult time. Is it sort of the primary topic of conversation? I would say so, yes. You know, people at this point, they just want a job, right? Um, they want to be able to pay their bills and just you know, have a good life. And what about you for yourself? I mean, I know you're working for the union, but that can't be always that easy in the situation you're in now either. You know, I, from my point of view, I just, I want to give them hope. I want, I want, I want to tell them that there's going to be better times ahead, but I want to tell them the truth at the same time, right? There's nothing worse than giving somebody false hope. So I'm, I'm curious to know, how do you do that when you, when you say you don't want to give them false hope, you, but you want to give them hope, you want to be honest with them? What do you say? You know, I tell them the truth. Uh, I tell them that there's going to be employment opportunities in Kitimat, but realistically, I don't think that's going to be for everybody, right? Maybe for a few hundred people. There might be some employment opportunities for them to go down to the U.S. and find work. And then I try to encourage them to upgrade their skills. We have a union training center that allows them to do refresher courses uh, specific to their trade, pipe bending, Canadian electrical code, basics of electrical theory, um, so that when a job opportunity comes up for them, they have that higher skill set and they're ready to go to work. I'm sure you've heard this phrase, just transition. Is the idea yeah. of su supporting workers in, in the fossil fuel industries, like coal or oil and gas, supporting them to, to transfer into some other kind of work as part of a bigger effort to act on climate change? I'm wondering what you think of the idea. Well, and thank you for the question. That's, um, you know, that's been a topic that's come up quite a bit lately. You know, the nice thing about being a journey person electrician you can work on a solar farm, you can work on a wind farm, you can work on an oil refinery. It's all electrical work and blueprints and Canadian electrical code. So your skills are easily transferable. And we have to work with our contractors uh, to make sure that our contractors are willing and able to bid that type of work. They're at the same time assuming a risk to their business by taking on a construction project that some of them may never have been built before. But if they don't bid the job, um, they're not going to get to work. And if they don't get the work, we can't put our members to work on some of these renewable energy projects. I guess one of the frustrations I have is uh, the rate of pay for some of these wind and solar farms. Um, people that have gotten used to making a wage around 75000 a year to be making around $40,000 a year can be a huge hit. So that's one challenge I think we're going to have to overcome as more and more of these jobs become available. Right. And that, that's, that's what just 
transition would mean to you, I guess. Absolutely. You know, I, I talk to our members all the time. They call in telling me, you know, asking me for advice, uh, sharing their concerns with me. And when you don't know what the future holds and you've got a family to look after um, and that family's looking up to you, uh, it can be an incredible burden on your shoulders. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to them, uh, every last one of them. You know, I want to do everything I can just to get them working again. I'm sure you do. Scott Crichton, thank you very much. Thank you. Scott Crichton is an electrician and union official in Edmonton. Just transition is more than just a catchy phrase. Whether speaking of manufacturing in Ontario, forestry in BC, or fisheries in Newfoundland, it implicitly recognizes that transitions in the past have been painful, foisted upon workers with not enough notice and too many layoffs. But Jim Stanford knows history doesn't have to repeat itself. And he says with careful planning and lots of time, fossil fuel workers can be shifted out of their jobs and into brighter futures. Jim Stanford is an economist and the director of the Centre for Future Work. Hello. Hello, Laura. Net zero emissions by 2050 is the goal, but you say we should start the job of transition for oil and gas workers now. Why? Time is the best friend of transition, Laura. The longer in advance we can recognize what's happening, plan for it, and then encourage people and communities to make the necessary adjustments, the less painful it will be. On the other hand, if we wait until the last minute and try to deny and delay what's happening, uh, then at the end of the day, there'll be a, a, you know, a day of reckoning that's forced on us when the rest of the world stops buying our fossil fuels. And that's when we'll get real chaos, mass layoffs and uh, communities that are in crisis. So much better to start the job now and do it gradually over a long period of time. Tell me how you foresee it working then. Well, I proposed in in my paper uh, using a 20-year phase-out as a benchmark. It doesn't have to be 20 years. It could be a little faster than that. It could be a little slower than that. Um, The key advantage of thinking in advance is you can then enlist the normal forces and um, mechanisms of labor force adjustment. So retirements. Most fossil fuel workers today are going to retire in the next 20 years. So the simplest thing to do is just let them finish out their careers and retire. You might give them some extra incentive to retire early. Then at the same time, even for people who aren't retiring, there are people changing jobs and changing where they live all the time. So if they know that this industry is phasing out over 20 years, they're going to adjust their decisions accordingly. And young people are going to choose different careers. So if we enlist all of those normal forces of adaptation, the task per year becomes almost very insignificant. Uh, By my estimations, 4,000 or fewer jobs per year over the next 20-year period would have to be um, reallocated to another job or another industry uh, in order to get the industry completely phased out uh, in 20 years. But these are jobs that people have have taken on for years, at least in part because they're very well-paying jobs, and and you can't expect them to, to be discouraged from going into that industry when there may be nothing on the horizon that looks equally of, of equal uh, pay if they're going to get out of oil and gas. How do you discourage people from entering the industry? So uh, already, because of the transition that's happening, I mean, this isn't an abstract idea in the future. We're seeing this transition right now. 50,000 jobs in fossil fuel industries have disappeared since 2014. Uh, Secondly, 
I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what part of the challenge is. Part of the challenge is going to be to make sure there are abundant alternative opportunities uh, of jobs that are attractive, that are secure, that are decent and uh, adequately paid. And so a key part of the transition plan is certainly going to be uh, making job creation across the whole economy, but especially in fossil fuel producing regions. Uh, the key point is to make sure that people understand what's happening. And then when a young person is thinking about their career choice, they're not going to go into an industry that has uh, a very, very limited time horizon. Here. Nobody's telling them, are they? Um, I don't think that we've been as honest with people working in the industry or thinking about going into the industry as we should have been. Um, it's not an attack to say, look at how the world is changing and, and let's get ready for it. And I think I, I come from Alberta. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, and I talk to people there all the time. And I think the majority of Albertans know that fossil fuels are on the way out. And you've seen a Calgary um, very rapidly trying to rebrand itself as a tech hub rather than an oil and gas capital. Calgary is one thing. I mean, it, it is a big city, so it has, has more of an ability to perhaps uh, retool itself. But there are some communities that are very dependent on fossil fuels, like Fort McMurray. What happens to communities like that by 2050? Uh, the transition challenge in cities is much easier than it is in small remote communities. There'll be other jobs that can be supported and created. Uh, if we put the right investment and the right attention into economic uh, diversification. And I think in most of those communities, that is eminently possible. Uh, services like uh, education, higher education, healthcare, public administration, we should be looking at ways to allocate those new jobs and investments to those communities to help them with the transition over the next uh, couple decades. Give me your vision of what Fort McMurray could look like. This is, in a way, the hardest nut to crack in the transition challenge. Uh, part of it is people are going to stop commuting, going to work there. There's uh, tens of thousands of people who don't actually live in Fort McMurray, but they work there. Uh, and they're either going to retire or they're going to find uh, other jobs. Uh, secondly, the big inflow of migration to Fort McMurray uh, is going to stop and reverse. You make it sound uh, like so it's going to shrivel things. up and die. Well, first of all, I, I don't think that will happen because Fort McMurray is a city and there's still a lot going there. So it's a bit different than, than the shriveling up and dying of other mining towns that has happened through Canadian history. I mean, this is not new, right? We've had resource-based booms and busts uh, for centuries. And Canada's economic history is written by the uh, rise and fall of different staple industries, You know, whether it was beaver pelts or fish or fur or lumber or mining. Uh, so this is not a new problem, but I think we can do it much, much better. I'd like to get you to to listen to a, a little bit of tape here. This is the Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. A lot of the people we're talking about when we talk about fossil fuel workers tend to be high-income white men. Um, and then we bring in these special supports to support them, which they deserve and, and ought to have. Um, but the people who don't get supports tend to be service workers who are more likely to be women, more likely to be uh, racialized people uh, and or immigrants who just don't have the same sort of economic uh, cushion to fall back on, the same kinds of social supports available to them. I'm wondering how you respond to that. I very much avoid trying to do a us versus them. You know, I'm needier than you, therefore I get more support. Uh, the reality is uh, fossil fuel workers, whether they're men or not, they're not all men, are going to need support over the next couple decades. And then all of the other jobs in those communities, including those Tim Hortons workers who are more likely to be women and more likely to be racialized and more likely to be poor, are also going to need support. So 
um, I, I think that this is a, this is a challenge that um, we have to address and everyone who works in that industry and related industries deserve support. So this is a national priority and everyone in Canada should contribute to the fair and effective adjustment of fossil fuel jobs. Jim Stanford, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. As Jim said, the oil and gas industry has seen its share of ups and downs. But now, as some are renewing their calls for a just transition, those who work in the industry have different views on its future. Dave Mercer is in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Stephen Bueller works in Edmonton. You'll hear Stephen first. I'm honestly like really stoked to see that like a lot of politicians are starting to talk about the idea of a just transition. And I think like now we're going to need to start thinking about, okay, like this just transition is going to include hundreds of thousands of jobs building solar infrastructure in southern Alberta, geothermal plants, like really start talking about what are the possibilities. And I think now we're at the place where the public is largely on side for a just transition. So now we're at the place where we can really start defining it and start allowing ourselves to imagine like what kind of future we want to see. Well, facing a, any transition to lose a job is, is not easy for any family. If you talk just about the Hibernia workers or just the Terra Nova workers, they say that for every one person that works offshore, 10 are affected onshore. So it's a hard road. And of course, COVID didn't help and the oil industry was hurting. We see the light at the end of the tunnel and uh, hopefully in the very near future, uh, things will be back to normal. And I'm hoping that it will advance into more exploration, more development. And uh, it's going to be 20 to 30 years or, or more before we're not dependent on oil anymore. Now, that enduring hope for a long career in oil and gas makes it more challenging to persuade people it's time to change. So how do you bring them around? Hassan Youssef has spent time with workers in coal mining communities, listening to their worries and fears. He's the president of the Canadian Labour Congress, and he was also co-chair of the Just Transition Task Force for Canadian coal power workers and communities. Hassan Youssef, hello. Thanks for having me. We're talking about finding jobs for oil and gas workers, but let's take a look at coal. What can we learn from planning that transition in Canada when talking about oil and gas? Well, what we can learn is that uh, workers are very worried about the future, and more importantly, um, they have families and they live in communities, and they really want to know how they're going to be impacted, and more importantly, how can they get the support and um, the assistance that they require to one, take care of their families. And secondly, of course, um, if they have to reskill or, you know, retire, you know, what transition measures can help. Uh, what we also have to appreciate, and these are highly paid jobs, anywhere between sixty to $100,000 a year. So it's it's not an easy challenge, but I think for the task force work, I, we were fortunate to be welcomed by those workers in their community, to have that conversation with them and to put together a report that reflects their reality and, of course, requires both government and employers' action uh, to ensure that those commitments will be met. Well, here's a question. Should the federal government just come out and say we are phasing out oil and gas completely and on a specific timeline? Well, I don't think that's very helpful. Uh, you don't want to scare people, but equally, I think it's, it's important for the government to send a very clear message that workers are going to be impacted by what's happening in the oil and gas sector. But I think the federal government has a responsibility to say, we are here to help you, to work with you, to support you as you will transition from this particular uh, uh, work that you're doing to something hopefully that could uh, give you a brighter future. But that sounds like a mixed message. 
Well, I don't think it's mixed because I think, you know, uh, workers are still hopeful that they have some future. If you're five years from retirement, the last thing you want somebody to tell you, hey, your job's going to be gone. And I think there is a recognition, both by the workers in the industry, that, that you know, many changes are happening. I wish the provincial government, current one, would have been a little bit more candid with its uh, with, with workers and, and, and the province about the challenges they face going forward. In absence of that, you do have a confused message. Well, you, you traveled to communities where the economies were based on coal and you talked to people there. What did you learn from that? What we did learn, I think, in the, the task force uh, work is that there are many things that I think employers, uh, government can mandate uh, to happen. For instance, if we know the industry is going to face significant challenge, I think the employers and government have a responsibility to help uh, start to do an inventory of skills that the workers have. What kind of training would they see uh, they need if they were to be uh, transitioning to other sectors? If somebody wants to retire, how do we help you get there so you don't lose your retirement benefit? But for those who want to pack up and move completely out of the province or to another community, what support can we provide for that to happen? At the same time, municipalities are going to face enormous challenges because they're losing the tax base and the jobs. How do we help those municipalities? You've listed a lot of things there. Um, do you see Ottawa or anyone in Alberta actually doing those things right now for the oil and gas industry? Well, right now, no, but I think I did see some positive developments as a result of the coal task force. The municipality we went in Alberta are some of the most uh, innovative and, and encouraging. We had a city council that sat on our task force who were very forceful, but equally brought a different perspective that allowed us to appreciate that we have to think of the community. They were already in the forefront recognizing they're not going to reverse the changes of what's happening to the coal industry. So they were in the business of thinking, how do we attract new kind of uh, employment to these communities? How do we maintain the tax base? And more importantly, how do we work with government to bring some of those resources that will help us with the work that we need to do? The next step, I think, what the federal government has to, to do in regard to its commitment to uh, net zero by 2050 is now to bring forth legislation around just transition. So it actually enshrined in law, what are the, the commitment they're making to workers and community? And hopefully partner with the provinces uh, where these impacts are going to happen in a significant way to say, how do we work together? You mentioned legislation there. Um, have you been given any indication by the federal government that legislation is coming? Well, as an indication that they will table a specific uh, uh, um, just transition legislation, and I've been urging the government to do that sooner rather than later. And giving you some credit for having some uh, some inroads into the government there, I'm wondering, have, have you been given any indication from inside government ranks that, that this is, in fact, coming imminently? Well, I don't know if it's imminently, but I hope it does come before the budget because I think it should really shape uh, some, of course, uh, the provisions in the budget about what the government commitment truly means in regard to just transition legislation. There, I just want to bring a finer point onto something we discussed uh, earlier. There are a lot of people in other sectors who will be affected by this, people who work in the service industry, for example, who are more likely to be women, racialized, often precarious workers. How specifically do we support those workers who may not always be included when people talk about a just transition? What we see in the, oil, uh, the coal task force uh, work, initially when we went out, didn't take, take into the families and the spouse. What happened to a spouse who already have a job when her husband or partner loses his or her job? 
Uh, and then we had to rethink, how do we also put recommendations in the task force that we need to take that into consideration? Because it's not just one individual you're now impacting, you're impacting a whole family. So we have to take consideration in that. I think the same goes for uh, what we never talk about is a spin-off job that these sectors support. In many cases, sometimes it's five or six or 10 or 12 jobs that comes with one of these jobs. And I think Government have to be generous. I think retraining has to be a critical part of it, but also uh, employment that is coming to give workers an opportunity. Most of these workers that are losing their jobs in the oil sector are unionized members, so they, they're fairly conscious of the fact they make a good salary and benefits to look after their family. And if we could sit around and talking about all the things we got to start doing, I think we can build a brighter future, recognizing that climate change will also bring opportunity for the, the new jobs are going to be created, of course, in the new sectors that are coming. How can we make those jobs well-paying jobs, but also jobs that have a union, but equally uh, jobs that will support the community in the, in, in the long term? Did you say jobs that have a union? Yes. Okay. Jobs that have <laughs> That's exactly what I expect you to say. But I'm, I'm wondering, what about the companies, though? What obligations do they have to their employees now and in the future? Well, I would list three very prominently. One, uh, given that what they know is coming with the changes that are coming. I think they need to start putting a plan together to say, how do we start uh, engaging our workers in conversation, recognize changes coming? Secondly, I think they need to really do an assessment to help the workers appreciate the amount of skills that they have. Our members are very resilient. They're very skillful and they're always upgrading their skills. But at the same time, I think employers have an obligation to do that. Secondly, of course, knowing if your your business is likely to lose a lot of workers, I think there's an obligation for employer to say, how can we help you bridge your benefits so you can get to retirement? Now those obligations, I'm wondering if you think they should be made law under this legislation you're wanting to see. Yes, I think that they need to be some specific reference in the legislation. It can be a bit about vagaries. You know, the whole the concept of just transitions about justice and transition. And I think we need to give that some meaning in the legislation. Hopefully the federal government will put forward. I started off uh, this interview talking about the fact that there are a lot of numbers, but at the end of the day, the numbers are people. How do you make sure that you don't lose sight of the fact that there are actually individuals involved with their concerns about their future? When I saw the decision this week, um, my heart was broken, obviously, because I, I could imagine what the families are going through and the stress and worry, you know, what's going to happen uh, to their livelihood, uh, to, their, to, their, to, their, to their families. And I think, you know, elected officials need to take the care. This is not a moment to gloat. Alberta has played a significant role in the development and the growth of the economy and, and the tax base for all the things we value. Alberta is part of our family as Canadians. And in this moment of difficulty, we need to be sympathetic to Alberta, but equally, we need to be supportive of the workers and the community that is going through this, this, this upheaval. We have to have respectful dialogue if we're going to make that happen. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Hassan Youssef is the president of the Canadian Labour Congress. We asked Natural Resources Canada when people could expect to see the federal government's long-promised just transition legislation. But it didn't say when or even if it's coming to Parliament. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. There are some who decided to leave oil and gas on their own terms. Nick Kendrick did. Now he works as an analyst with a renewable energy company. But back in 2013, he'd moved to Alberta from Nova Scotia to work in the oil patch. A few years in, he says he could see change was coming. It was stressful. I mean, uh, every time there's a bad news story about what's going on in the industry, everybody's like looking over their shoulder, just knowing, you know, that the old business model wasn't very lean. So they had to cut somewhere. And we were contractors at Syncrude. So we were a little bit more expendable than actual Syncrude operators. So I just wanted something I could provide for my family and just know I had a job in the future. And I respect anybody that's putting food on the table first and foremost, but at the same time, it definitely feels pretty good to uh, be doing what I'm doing now and helping try to be part of the future. Um, Especially here in Alberta, there's communities that really rely on the oil and gas industry, typically rural communities where there's not a whole bunch of opportunities just knocking on the door. I mean, if there's other options, then I think they'd be more open to it. So I think that's got to be a big part of the government's big uh, push for renewables and energy efficiency, because there is a lot of synergies that translate well to renewables. And uh, I think we just need to help out. I don't know if we're any better off if we're leaving people behind. Don't forget that some of the people being left behind in Alberta these days came from Newfoundland, searching for a job in the long wake of a devastating industry shutdown there nearly three decades ago. Thousands of workers in Newfoundland faced the end of their work and a way of life in a transition that was abrupt and painful. The federal government shut down the cod fishing industry and opened a vein of deep bitterness. People struggled hard with it. I mean, there was clearly anger, and I knew the fishermen who were pounding on the doors of the hotel in anger against uh, John Crosby. I'd lived in that community. Six generations down the line passed out. And he's done nothing but S-H-I-T to his... And with that, fishermen stormed the doors of John Crosby's news conference. I'm Barbara Neese. I'm a sociologist at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Neese went to the fishing villages, talking to the men and women, trying to gauge the impact on their lives. I can remember there was a plant that had 1,200 workers laid off trying to decide what to do. Do we stay in this rural community? What do we do with our homes, which we own in many cases? Stories of women getting in cars together and driving to Ontario to find work, leaving their children, uh, you know, to try and make enough income to sustain their families at home. The transition included payments, some of them contingent on signing up to learn new skills. You know, millions and millions and millions of dollars were pumped into creating retraining programs. And some of them, I think, were somewhat successful. They weren't all bad, and some people went into the trades and so on and so forth. But there was a lot of not particularly good quality training uh, and often training for work that 
didn't necessarily exist. How come we didn't bring in interim support for fishing families so that we didn't have to go and show the color of our goddamn underwear to every Tom, Dick, and Harry out to social services for $522? It sounds like there really wasn't much thought put into how they were going to transition people. Well, I think that's, in some sense, that's the saddest and the most shocking thing. So you've made a policy decision to lay off 40,000 people, and you basically don't want a lot of them to come back into the industry, and you don't think they're going to be able to come back for environmental reasons. Then you need a plan that works for this particular kind of labor force that's informed by a deep understanding of who they are and what they do and where they live and what their options are. A plan, Nice says, that could help avoid the anger, anguish, and uncertainty that enveloped her province. That does it for us this week. Thanks to the What on Earth team, associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel, and technician Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.